listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Stanton, Zach Taylor, and Jeremy Paxton. Welcome to the seventh installment of The Weekly Brew, your source for political, social, and sports commentary brewed up in 30 minutes or less. I'm Austin Staten, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Zach Taylor and Jeremy Paxton. Guys, how has the last week been? It's been pretty great. I'm actually on the brink of getting my first fantasy football win tonight, so that's pretty awesome. Well, hopefully we don't jinx it for you. Jeremy, what about you? I've been doing good. Just took a test, a licensing exam, so I'm just a little frazzled from that. But uh, other than that, I'm doing all right. As mentioned earlier, this is our seventh episode, lucky number seven. We've had listeners from all over the world join. We've had Europe, Asia, Latin America. We even had a listener from Iraq last week. So, guys, I think that means that we're about to make it big. So we've got a full show ahead of us. It's time to sit back, grab a drink, listen, and be informed. Let's start with the big lead. The big lead. The GOP is scrambling to fill the top GOP jobs in the House following Speaker John Boehner's surprise resignation last week. Outside of an obvious void at the local tanning salon in Washington, D.C., what are the major implications here? Initially, it looks like we're probably not going to we're going to avoid a government shutdown, but that's probably going to include a, a bill that funds Planned Parenthood. And I think that's going to you know sp- spike a whole lot of debate amongst uh, the presidential candidates. Honestly, this was really unexpected from 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 my from my viewpoint, uh, as it was, I think, for a lot of people in the House and certainly the uh, the presidential field. Uh, Boehner has been taking quite a beating for a long time uh, from the GOP, uh, the base, and also just uh, in general, the Democrats. But um, he's had a rough go of it since 2011 when he assumed the speakership. He, he really has not been seen effective. In fact, according to the Washington Post, he's the most unpopular speaker in three decades. That's, that's quite an accomplishment, not exactly one you want to stand on. I think he came in with his strategy being compromised instead of using that as a tactic. Uh, and so he, he just didn't end up making anyone happy, especially the base. So I, I look for, um, in terms of his successors, I look for uh, Kevin McCarthy. I think he's um, he's sort of one of the front runners for it. I look for him to get it, um, or someone who's definitely a little bit more um, friendly to the to the base of the party. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned the Washington Post survey saying that he was the most unpopular person in 30 years. Actually, Nate Silver from 538 wrote today that by statistical measures, Boehner's tenure featured an extraordinary degree of party unity among Republicans in the House. At almost no point in history have such a large majority of Republicans voted together so often, especially when they stood in opposition to Democrats. Silver later went on to say that they are united against Democrats and deeply divided as a group. So you kind of hit that on the nail talking about, you know, that, you know, kind of the, 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 the lack of unity within the Republican Party. And as you mentioned, uh, Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy seems to be the front runner. He officially announces candidacy today uh, to the fellow GOP lawmakers. Uh, another name to look for would be House Budget Committee Chairman Tom Price from Georgia who picked up an endorsement from Paul Ryan this afternoon, who is chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Personally, I don't know too much about McCarthy or what he's going to bring to the table. I do know he spent some time bridging the gap between the Tea Party and the establishment, which I think is much needed right now in the House and the Senate. McCarthy just recently actually quoted uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address in saying hostility towards no one, and that is certainly approach an approach that neither Boehner or McConnell has taken towards the Tea Party or the more conservative base of the Republicans. And that's been my biggest complaint against both Boehner and McConnell, whom I hope is next, is that they're more willing and eagerly willing to work with the Democrats than they are with, you know, the different factions of their own party. 
I think it's going to be interesting to see how McCarthy kind of weighs his campaign. And I, I think it's almost a foregone conclusion that he will be the next Speaker of the House. Uh, there were rumors after the last election in 2014 that, you know, uh, Boehner, one, might resign, as he kind of alluded to uh, this past Friday when he made his announcement. And a lot of people thought that, or I mean, Kevin McCarthy was sort of making a push uh, for that speaker role. Uh, he told Fox News today that it's not going to be easy to change this culture and it won't happen overnight, but that's my mission. Basically saying that he wants to unite the fractured Republican Party and heading into an election year, I think that's going to be critical for the GOP. As fractured as the Republican Party seems, it's important to remember uh, that the Democrats are not exactly unified either, especially with uh, if you look at their presidential field. So, um, But of course, they're not the focus of attention right now because they don't have neither the House or the Senate will definitely be an interesting story to follow over the next few weeks. The Republicans are going to have a meeting on Tuesday to kind of discuss the direction of the party. Uh, Boehner will continue to serve uh, as the Speaker of the House through the end of October and will resign at the end of the month. The big lead. Europe is facing a significant influx of refugees from Syria. Last week, the Obama administration announced a plan to allow 10,000 Syrian refugees into the United States over the next year as part of a broader plan to accept more refugees from around the world. The plan, announced last week by Secretary of State John Kerry, calls for the U.S. to accept 85,000 refugees from around the world next year, up from 70,000 with that total increasing to 100,000 in 2017. This would include Syrian refugees who are flooding into Europe to escape the country's bloody civil warfare at the moment. Republicans have balked saying they're not sure of the vetting process and see a potential security risk. President Barack Obama, addressing the UN General Assembly on Monday, singled out Syrian leader Assad, calling him a tyrant for dropping barrel bombs to massacre innocent children. Essentially, we have a problem in Syria. There are tons of political refugees. What is the solution here? That's... A very tough question that I don't know anybody knows how to answer. I, I think the solution is not what Germany has done and just open borders. Anybody claiming to be a Syrian refugee can come right in without any validation or check. There's there's a whole lot of sympathy, particularly because of all the, the pictures and images in the news right now about what's happening in Syria, that you know anyone wanting to exploit the system can just ripely take advantage of this if you can get, you know, any sort of Syrian documentation, which has been proven to be quite easy for $2,000. In looking at the situation, the whole thing is tragic and there are no easy solutions. Um, I, I, I think with any conflict like this, uh, there are a lot of people that, that are going to use it to make a move, whether they need to or not. Um, I've noticed that uh, a lot of the reports coming out of uh, Europe and the Balkans where a lot of this has been happening um, a, a lot of these refugees are, uh, some of them are from the war-torn areas and some of them are not. Um, Europe, this is, and, and just to kind of put this in a broader perspective, Europe has had a quote-unquote refugee problem for a number of years now. Um, this has been going on for decades, but this, the, the sheer volume of it has not matched what we've seen here in the past couple of months. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what... Um, what the EU does, in particular Germany, um, with the swell of refugees and whether um, you know they decide to start turning some away or just sort of uh, keep them wholesale there in their country. Um, I know that uh, countries like Hungary um, and others in the, in the Balkans are sort of shutting down their borders uh, because they just can't deal with uh, the number of migrants that they have coming through their country. 
overall, I think it's a sad situation. I mean, I, I don't know what the solution is and uh, the, the best way to solve this. Uh, you know, it, it's sad to look at the European papers and see, you know, bodies of young children and families washing up on shore because they cannot get into countries. I mean, you, you almost have a similar situation that we've seen here in the United States with Cuban refugees uh, floating on rafts trying to, you know, escape the Castro regime and, you know, heading uh, for political refuge and political asylum here in the United States. Um, actually, there was an article posted in February from the Daily Mail, so take this what you will, but Hannah Roberts uh, reported that ISIS was threatening to send 500,000 migrants to Europe as, quote, psychological weapons and chilling echo of Gaddafi's prophecy, what the Mediterranean will become, quote, a sea of chaos. Um, you know, Italian press published claims that ISIS had threatened to release the huge wave of migrants to cause chaos in Europe if they are attacked. So do you see any sort of security risk with allowing these refugees? And if so, what should the vetting process look like? Oh, absolutely. There is actually, as you mentioned, I read earlier this week that the Lebanese government has actually warned that two in every 100 Syrian migrants smuggled into Europe are actually ISIS trained fanatics, um, with most traveling overland from Turkey into Greece. It's absolutely something that needs to be looked after. And that's that's part of this. I, I understand that, that Sy- this is a very sad situation and we need to help the Syrian refugees as much as possible. But JPAX, you had mentioned that, that a lot of a lot of the refugees coming in are, are from Syria. And I actually read something recently that there was a claim by the left, primarily in the UK, that some statistics showing that four out of every five uh, refugees coming into Europe were from Syria. And that was actually debunked that actually only one in five are actually from Syria. And that has to do a lot with the forging of documentation and stuff that a whole lot of them are, are coming from Morocco, Egypt, Algeria, Pakistan, and several other places. Um, for no other reason, just wanting to get into Europe for economic reasons or just, you know, regular migrating, you know, motives. And they're able to take advantage of the sympathy surrounding Syrian re- refugees. I, I think uh, David Cameron has actually set up a pretty good precedent that could really help with this and that he is not, he's, I believe, said that they are going, that the UK is going to accept 20,000 more Syrian migrants. Um, but they're only going to allow them to come from the Lebanese and the Jordanian camps and not accepting Syrian migrants that are already in Europe as a way to try and ensure that the migrants that are claiming to be Syrian are in fact actually Syrian. Certainly. I, I know that uh, the UK has been taking kind of a hit lately um, in some of the papers over over its uh, sort of non-compliant. It, you know, it's not exactly fi- following Germany's suit and just taking in hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers. But I honestly don't blame them. I, this is this sort of crisis is unprecedented, and I don't think we've seen a refugee crisis quite like this since the Second World War. So from what we realized today at the UN, there are two different approaches. Uh, President Obama seems to be saying that we need to uh, force Assad out. We need to do something to help these refugees, whereas Vladimir Putin is saying that uh, you know we need a generally broad international coalition to fight the Islamic State including a Security Council resolution to coordinate military action, essentially saying that we have to work with the Syrian government. Putin further said on ISIS that we cannot allow these criminals who have already felt the smell of blood to return back home and continue their evil doings. No one wants this to happen. I'm not exactly sure what Putin's strategy is here long term and why I've seen a a buildup of Russian military hardware uh, in Syria uh, in the areas that Assad controls. I mean, he's he, what he's most likely to do is setting up a move where he can negotiate a, a greater role for Russia in the region. 
um, at the cost of American power, of course. Um, what, what's disappointing about this entire situation, and every time I hear Putin speak or uh, move on the world stage, I, I see it's more evidence that you know the U.S. is taking a back seat. And I look that as look at that as a failed um, as the failed leadership of this president and his administration. Um, foreign policy wise, they've just been a disaster. Um, and so I I wonder if you know Obama was a little bit more robust with his foreign policy and wasn't you know um, if he wasn't drawing so many imaginary red lines. Um, if what would be happening right now, if Putin would really be you know stepping up to the plate. Um, and so I'm, I don't know. It's it's disappointing to see America take such a backseat uh, like this, and see a, a you know a thug like Putin have to step up, and as a result, um, gain more influence in the region. So I, I just today saw um, a report that Putin had brokered a deal with Iran and Syria um, to defeat ISIS, and I just it's something about that makes me a little uneasy. I don't know about you guys. I think this is a broader issue that's not going to go away anytime soon. And I think that's one of the things that we should look forward to with the 2016 presiden presidential election. We need to see which candidates are going to emerge in terms of foreign policy. Because as Mitt Romney said during the 2012 election, the biggest threat right now to the United States is Russia and Vladimir Putin. I think a lot of people at the time kind of laughed that off. But as we've seen within the last year of you know Putin and Russia, you know, almost invading Ukraine in the Crimea region, uh, they're a problem, especially to security in that region. And uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, uh, you know, definitely this geopolitical conflict to continue well into the next administration. You know, speaking of the how the presidential candidates are going to react with foreign policy, I, I actually would like to call attention to Marco Rubio in the second presidential debate when asked about Syria. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, and please correct me if I am wrong, that he he predicted that in the next few weeks at that time that Putin would we would see Putin try and prop up Assad and support the uh, that that regime in the fight against ISIS and you know in seeing what has actually happened over the last few days and the way Putin is is actually backing Assad and with that it's, it seems to lend a whole lot of credibility to me at least in what Marco Rubio knows about foreign policy I believe you are correct about that that he did make that prediction um, I. I don't know a whole lot more in terms of depth on that, but uh, yeah, you know, he definitely called that one. Um, Putin is is definitely positioning himself to exert more influence in the region because when, I mean, when you see Assad being propped up by Putin, you can guarantee that uh, Assad is now sort of a puppet for him because he's essentially the only one keeping that regime going. So definitely a lot of news emerging from Syria. We had planned to talk about this originally last week, uh, but I think that presidential debates kind of push this to the next week. Uh, but, you know, as mentioned today, President Obama, uh, Vladimir Putin both spoke at the UN General Assembly. Obviously, Syrian refugees are going to be an ongoing issue heading into, you know, uh, the presidential election next year. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Around the Horn. Ben Carson, who has surged in the polls in recent weeks, told Chuck Todd of NBC's Meet the Press last week that he would not advocate that we put a Muslim in charge of this nation, saying, quote, I absolutely would not agree with that. Last week, many advocacy groups have called for him to resign, but he continued to back his statement before backtracking a little bit last week. Oddly enough, during that time, his donations have increased. What do we make of this? It's important to know Carson, well, he... he his statement should have been a little more succinct. Uh, he did follow up, follow it up with something that's a little bit more defensible. Uh, he said, I would have problems with someone who embraced all of the doctrines associated with Islam. 
if they are not willing to reject Sharia and all the portions of it that are talked about in the Quran, if they are not willing to reject that and subject that to American values in the Constitution, then of course I would oppose them. This is of course a little bit more defensible. I, I, I think anyone um, who is familiar with Sharia law knows that it's not exactly compatible with the Constitution. And, and if that's what he was trying to say, that's not an unreasonable position. His first comments it sort of seemed like he was labeling and rejecting an entire group of people. But I think in that sense, he deserved the criticism that he got. That kind of question by Chuck Todd, it was just sort of a bait question uh, that, that he took. Um, and I, I think it demonstrates his inexperience as a candidate to answer it so candidly like that. Um, if you look at what some other candidates have said, Ted Cruz, notably, uh, he said that um, you know, the, the presidency does not have a, a religious test. In other words, you don't, um, th that's not something that, um, you know, the, the, the president does not have to adhere to a certain religion to become president. So um, it, it's really what he should have said, but I, I understand where he was coming from. Around the horn. We're about a week and a half away from the end of the Major League Baseball season, and playoffs are starting to take shape. We've got a wild card race uh, going in the American League, as well as positioning for the AL West division with three teams um, all within reach of each other. What are you guys excited about the playoffs, and who do you guys see winning the West and getting the American League wild card? I'll tell you what, I can just tell you that as a baseball fan, this is absolutely thrilling to watch. Uh, there's nothing better than baseball in October and to be able to get that a little bit early, you know, in September, essentially the games that we're seeing right now, especially with AL West, it's essentially the playoffs. Obviously right now, the two teams that lead the wild card are the Yankees. They're up four and a half on Houston. They're up five games on LA. So we can essentially, you know, go ahead and check them in uh, one of the wild card teams. Then Houston, uh, who struggled, especially in the month of September has won five of their last 10 games, and their bullpen has struggled immensely during that time frame. Uh, they hold just a half-game lead on the Angels of Anaheim and a game and a half on the Minnesota Twins. Obviously, they're a few games back, two and a half of uh, you know the Texas Rangers uh, after splitting the, the weekend series, but their final six games are all on the road. And for a team that struggled immensely on the road this year, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they respond. But I think if the Astros do get to the playoffs, they are a very, very dangerous team. Uh, I think uh, the LA Angels, I think uh, their biggest issue right now is the back of the bullpen. Obviously, losing Houston Street for the rest of the season will hurt them. But I think the team that is going to uh, run away with the American League is going to be that team from up north, the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, you know, they're just playing a great brand of baseball since the All-Star break. Uh, they're actually tied right now for first place for home field advantage. Uh, so I think the Rogers Center is going to be rocking in October. And out of the National League, I mean, it, gosh, I mean, there's so many talented teams there. I can tell you the one game that I am looking forward to is going to be that that playoff game uh, with Pittsburgh and the Chicago Cubs. And we were going to have uh, you know, Arietta facing off against one of the best pitchers in the game and Garrett Cole. So uh, definitely ready for the hunt for October. What are you guys talking about? I'm sorry. I just uh, I tuned out there for a sec. All I speak is college football right now. And thinking about this past weekend and all of its drama, um, let's see. Let's start here with Michigan knocking off, <laughs> shutting out number 22 BYU. Of course, we had Baylor pummeling Rice. Oklahoma State stealing the game out from under Texas, which, might I add, the referee crew uh, that made the controversial calls in that game was also the same crew that refereed the West Virginia-Baylor game of infamy last year. So let that uh, puts it into context a little bit. Um, let's see, we had uh, TCU uh, 
take the game right out from under Texas Tech there with a last-minute freak touchdown. Uh, Texas A&M got away and pulled over Arkansas. And another really surprising game. I did not expect Utah to beat Oregon like that. His final score is 62-20. to So Oregon is uh, struggling a little bit this year. You know, Zach and I both talked about uh, when we were making our college football predictions after week one that Oregon was definitely a team that is struggling. Uh, You know, we said that when they went into Michigan State, that one of the big challenges for them was going to be defense because they struggled in their you know first game against an FCS school allowing 40 plus points. Then Utah just went in and absolutely wrecked them this past week at Autzen Stadium. Nobody goes into Oregon and wins that much, you know, by that many points. I think it was their largest defeat at home in more than 50 years. In fact, Utah jumped up in the top 10 of the AP poll, actually garnering a first place vote. Um, so I think that, you know, Pac-12 race is going to be pretty interesting with Utah, Stanford, uh, UCLA, who's ranked number seven. Uh, and then I don't think you can count out, um, you know, s- some other great programs. It's going to be a fun race to watch. Zach, what about you? What do you think? I completely agree. Actually, one of the things I was most excited about was uh, seeing A&M beat Arkansas this week. I really am not a fan of Bielema, like not even at all. And I just, I can't believe the dumpster fire right now. I feel like that's just too, you know, minimal of a comparison right now to what's going on with the Arkansas football program. I think I remember one ESPN reporter actually picking Arkansas to be one of the teams in the playoff losing to Toledo and then to Tech and then you know like like Kingsbury said in the comments that we discussed last week it's it's just amazing what's going on and I just wonder how much longer Bielema is going to be tolerated there in Fayetteville yeah I think it's kind of interesting you see uh, him and then Butch Jones over at Tennessee you know after the first week of the season everyone was giving both of those coaches praise saying they were turning their programs around but now both of those coaches are on the hot seat but that's the thing with college football crazy things can happen Speaking of crazy things happening, last week I made the prediction that Texas Tech would upset TCU. They didn't quite upset them, but they covered the spread. It was a hell of a game. Uh, And if it wasn't for a a miraculous tipped ball, uh, you know, Texas Tech would have knocked off one of uh, the top five teams in the country. But they get a great test this week against a Baylor team. The over-under is currently listed at 77. Baylor opened as a 15.5-point favorite. It's going to be a fun game between two high-powered offenses with Cliff Kingsbury and Art Bryles directing the show. I don't know if you guys saw, but we have a fancy new rivalry trophy that was unveiled today. Do we really? We did. It's uh, It's got shootout on the front. It's got like a football on top with BU and Texas Tech. It's actually kind of cool. I like it. I just did know that our rivalry was that was that intense. I, I think by the trophy design, and it's just now coming up this year, uh, you know, 75 games into the series, I, I, I don't know what, what it says about the rivalry. Can you text me a picture of that? Zach, if you were on social media, you'd be able to see it. Yeah, Zach. I, I, I don't believe in, I, I, I am not into the media, social media. You should be because that would really help us in our rating. <laughs> why don't you just be a conformist, Zach? Why don't you, why don't you just get with it? Why don't you get with 2005 and get on Facebook, Zach? Man, if, if, if Austin had a dime for every single time over the last, like, five years that he's told me to get on Twitter or Facebook, I'd, you know, he'd probably have enough to go, like, put a down payment on a car or something. Zach still has a MySpace account. He's still friends with Tom. That's his number one friend. I, I didn't even know that MySpace was even still a thing. Zach, you do know that only garage bands and child molesters use MySpace. That is a fact. I just want you to know what you're involved with. Zach is still dialing in with AIM right now, so, you know, <laughs> we're trying to get him caught up with the 21st century. <laughs> That's why we've been having recording problems. Dude, we need to have a talk, buddy. That took a drastic turn. 
So needless to say, college football after four weeks, uh, it, it's been definitely a fun season, and uh, we're just getting started. We're a third of the way through with the season. Cannot wait to see how this shakes out, and especially once the college football committee finally meets. I think it's going to be interesting, uh, the debates that we're going to have regarding their uh, selection and the ordering of the teams and how they rank and how they fall. Closing time. Guys, that was a fun episode. We talked about Zach's ineptness when it comes to social media. We talked about Syria. We talked about John Boehner and his tanning salons. We also talked about Ben Carson, playoff chase, college football in general. Did you guys have fun tonight? Absolutely. I, I plan on uh, texting you guys about it after on my Razor phone. <laughs> I, I'm having a lot of fun making Zach's Facebook profile right now. Oh, gosh. Please, please send me a friend request. Zach, you don't have a t-shirt on or a shirt in general in any of these pictures that are on your Facebook. It's really embarrassing. Well, since Jeremy mentioned Facebook, we'll go ahead and do a plug. You can follow us at facebook.com slash weekly brewcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at twitter.com slash weekly brewcast. Again, this is our seventh episode. Give us a follow. Search for us on iTunes with the Weekly Brew. Tell all your friends. Tell your pet. Do whatever you can to listen. We've got followers all over the world. Uh, you know, It's definitely been a, a lot of fun. Uh, leave us feedback. Tell us what you would like to hear. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of fun tonight, and uh, we hope that you enjoy listening to us each week. And for my co-host, Zach Taylor and Jeremy Paxson, I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Zach Taylor, and Jeremy Paxton.